Making the simple complicated is commonplace. Making the complicated simple, awesomely simple, that's creativity. So said Charlie Mingus. Hello and welcome to A Photographic Life. I should say, if you're not aware of Charles Mingus's work, uh, maybe you are a little bit scared of jazz. Maybe you don't like jazz. Well, I recommend Mingus's A Hum to anybody's record collection or Spotify playlist. Over the last week, I've been thinking a lot about artists, and that's primarily because I watched the Julian Schnabel film, A Private Portrait. Not a new film, in fact, quite an old film, but uh, I return to it again because I'm always interested in art and photography. I remember commissioning the photographer Sylvia Placci in New York to photograph Schnabel uh, back in the 1990s. She went for a walk with him um, around the streets of New York, and the picture she sent me was a very Schnabelesque colour transparency of him crossing the road at the traffic lights on a bright and sunny day. She had taken the idea of playing around with the format, as always Sylvia did, um, trained, of course, by Andre Cortez. If you're not aware of Sylvia Placci, that's P-L-A-C-H-Y, check her out. Anyway, uh, that was the picture she'd taken. In my house hangs a portrait of Francis Bacon that was given to me by the photographer John Hedgecoe when I designed his book Portraits. I've also got a picture of David Hockney, a portrait of Hockney by Colin Jones, again given me by uh, Colin there. What also occurred to me thinking about art and those crossovers was the filmmaking of Julian Schnabel, in particular the film and the book. I read the book first, actually. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Well, why am I talking about all of this stuff? Well, because I've been thinking about these photography crossovers. The idea of the multifaceted image maker using different tools to make different marks. The reason I spoke about those portraits there of Hockney, I say portraits because I also have one I, I did of him at the Chelsea Flower Show. A court Polaroid through the... Uh, I suppose, flowers hanging and plants hanging down off of a trellis. But Hockney is somebody who's always been happy to embrace the iPad or the latest inventions or the latest technology in his mark-making. Over the last week, I put forward an article onto the United Nations of Photography.com website about the 10 lies of photography. It seems to have been the most popular post that I've ever written or put there. Thousands of people are looking at it every day. But although I would say overall, there's been a lot of positivity to the comments I make. You can check it out for yourself, of course. One of the, uh, I suppose, most contentious, and there always seems to be one that's contentious, uh, comments that I made was concerning style. I said that style is not something to be uh, aimed for and not a word to be used in relation to photography. 
Those artists I was just talking about there are constantly evolving and constantly moving, although they have visual languages, which is instantly identifiable. And therefore, for me, visual language is what we should be aiming for. That's something that's based on our personal experiences and our life experiences. Style is transitory. I so often hear it being used and applied to photography. I kind of understand why people are using it as a word, um, but I think it's lazy. It doesn't really go to the depths of understanding of what's required to create that visual language. Whereas the idea of a style is something that can perhaps be bought into or layered on top or added to, to an existing body of work. Let's think of a child with a blank piece of paper. Let's think of you as a child with a blank piece of paper, not knowing what to draw. So often that first drawing is of a house, isn't it? And that house has four windows and a door in the middle, perhaps, from Western culture, I should say, and the sun up in the sky. The fact and the reality is that that's a search for something. It's not based on what we're really experiencing as as a child. And it's the same thing with photography. If we go out there and just repeat what others are doing because it seems to be the easy solution to a problem, we're never going to progress, evolve or create successful images that are connected to our passions. I tried my very best in the last week to to watch the second episode of the BBC Ranking Photography uh, programme. I have to say that I found it a painful experience. I'm not deliberately attacking this program. I want it to be good. But when I hear catchphrases such as take it to the next level, raise our game, own it, all of which have as much relevance to photography as nice to see you to see you nice, I know that photography deserves better than this. Sticking with an idea this week of short snippets of information after my rather long dialogue at the beginning of the episode, I saw this the other day, and uh, it was a comment from Aperture's film and photo uh, issue of their magazine, and uh, acclaimed director Sophia Coppola said this, I take photographs right into the script, so when we're shooting, I have direct visual references. Once again, it ties into that importance of moving image, film, photography and visual language. Thanks a lot for that, Sophia. And maybe that's something else that photographers should be thinking about, how their work fits into an ongoing narrative. I'd like to bring to your attention this week a photographer that you may not be aware of. Not somebody new, but somebody old. In fact, somebody who's no longer with us anymore. But I'm suggesting that you check him out in case you're not aware of his work. I don't think there's any photographer that I've recommended more to students who I work with than this photographer. His name is Robert Fresson. And who's he? Well, here's what I know about Fresson. 
He survived Germany's occupation of Belgium. Then in 1947, he left for Switzerland to study photography. He then took a master's degree in photography and moved to the United States with his young bride. He dropped his portfolio off at the mecca of fashion photography Vogue and only a few days later he received a telegram inviting him to work under Irving Penn. At that point, probably the best photographer in the world. He stayed learning his craft from Penn for the next 13 years and in 1962 he left Penn to go it alone. But rather than still life or fashion like his mentor, he chose photojournalism. In the 60s, he was very in demand, and he seems to have shot virtually anyone famous in the, that decade, from Sophia Loren to Dwight D. Eisenhower to Salvador Dali. Basically everyone. He also shot ads, notably for Whitbread, for Colin Millwood at CDP in London, and the Jamaica campaign for DDB in New York. I'm sure you'll recognise that if you're of an age similar to me. For the next 40 years, he kept two studios, one in France and one in Carnegie Hall, New York. In the 1970s, he moved into food photography and his books, The Taste of France and The Taste of Italy, became a bestseller and they're still on sale today. That's Robert Fresson. If you're a food photographer, you have to check him out. If you're any other kind of photographer, I suggest you check him out. I often say that the world of photography is a very small world, a small place filled with synchronicities and seven degrees of uh, separation in that kind of way. Well, this week's contributor to what does photography mean to me actually took a photograph that had more meaning to me than any other in the teenage years that we all go through searching for fashion, style and meaning and music and all of those kinds of things. Well, that photograph was of the band Orange Juice. It was a black and white photograph connected to their seminal album, You Can't Hide Your Love Forever. I bought the album when it came out. I was obsessed with postcard records and the sound of young Scotland. I wore my fringe like Roger McGuinn's because I was hoping to impress. Any Orange Juice fans will know where that comes from. So anyway... I then realised that this week's photographer was the photographer who took that image. I also then realised that he went to the Gloucester College of Art, which is just up the road from me. So it is a small world, isn't it? But who is that photographer who is going to uh, contribute this week and explain what photography means to him in less than five minutes? Well, it's David Corio. David was born in London in 1960 and age 16 he went to Gloucester College of Art and designed to study photography. After leaving college he worked in an industrial darkroom as a printer and started to freelance in 1978 for the New Musical Express followed by The Face, Time Out, Q, Mojo, Black Echoes, The Guardian, The Telegraph and numerous other magazines and newspapers. In 1992, he moved to New York and for 16 years worked mainly for the New York Times and various record labels. Corio is best known for his portraits of musicians, including many reggae, hip-hop, soul and jazz artists, and his photographs have appeared on over 500 record sleeves.
With over 200 of his images of black musicians being published in the book The Black Chord, Corio also has a strong interest in prehistoric standing stones. And his book, Megaliths, with text by Lai Nagan Corio, was published in 2001. His photos are in the collections of the National Portrait Gallery, Victoria, Victoria and Albert Museum, the ICA, the National Museum and Museum of African American Culture, tripping over my words this week, in Washington, D.C., and the National African American Museum in Tennessee, and the Bob Marley Museum in Kingston, Jamaica. I think that's enough of me trying to get through the introduction. Let's hear from David. So I was talking to my friend's 14-year-old son recently who's doing uh, O-level in photography, and I asked him what sort of camera he was using, and he said uh, iPhone, as if that was the only sort of camera out there. And it got me thinking how boring <laughs> that was. Um, you know, I always felt, well, surely photography should be exciting and uh, exhilarating. Um, I've been taking photographs for over 40 years now, but I probably, first off, when I was probably about five, um, I remember seeing my granddad printing in a darkroom he'd built under the stairs in his house. And um, he was just doing contact prints, but there was something really exciting about seeing the these little two-inch square prints, you know, develop. And... Um, that hasn't left me. I think, you know, that whole getting into a dark room, there's still something exciting about seeing a print appear and particularly if it comes out well anyway and uh, looks good, that's it can be really exhilarating. Um, I've mainly worked for, in editorial work for newspapers and magazines and uh, photographing musicians, portraits in general and um just you know the early days when i was sort of 17 18 i started working for nme new musical express and uh be you know commissioned to go to gigs and you'd have to turn around pictures for the next morning so come home get into the bathroom or kitchen and sort of develop films wash them, dry it with a hairdryer, print off four or five resin-coated prints as quickly as possible, never did contact sheets, and um, be delivering the prints the next morning. And, um, you know, that had a real excitement about it. I mean, the music obviously helped. It was sort of late 70s into the 80s, and there was a lot of great music about. But... I think it was that sort of um, energy of taking photographs with film and printing them. It enabled me to put your own stamp of uh, your own identity in a way on uh, on your photography, which is lacking in a lot of digital photography, I think. And, um, you know, it's partly the prospect of shooting, doing portraits or whatever of people that you're in awe of. I mean, it was certainly great for me to be able to meet people like Anthony Burgess and James Brown, Robert Altman, um, U2. I mean, there was something 
an energy that you got from doing that sort of work and knowing that you had to turn around stuff. You didn't have a chance to reshoot. You didn't have, thankfully, have sort of makeup or hair or art directors involved. So it was normally just sort of one-to-one, often have five minutes or sometimes even less. James Brown gave me a minute and timed me uh, to take photographs of him. But that gives off a, a real excitement and it's something that probably doesn't happen now with things that are so sort of micromanaged but it was certainly good for me in uh, in my career I think um, and also I mean I've experimented a lot with different types of infrared film and platinum palladium printing and recently I've been doing a lot of cyanotype printing and uh, there's a I find that really exciting as well. It's really just not quite knowing what you're going to get, but when you get something good, it's something, wow, it gives you a real buzz, you know, which is great. And I think um, that's something that, you know, a lot of people take photographs, but I always feel, you know, to be a photographer, you should do the whole process of developing, printing, and you get a lot more from it. You learn a lot more. Same with trying out different cameras. I love the old sprocket rocket and, you know, plastic cameras that give off different results. You can get some great results from them. Looking through photography books, discovering new photographers, old photographers you might have forgotten about as well. That's always exhilarating, I find. So I tell students, you know, photography is fun. That's it. Thank you, David, for your contribution this week. I should just say that uh, that photograph I was talking, that image I was talking about of orange juice is on the United Nations of Photography.com website if you want to see what inspired me. But anyway, um, we're a broad church here, aren't we? There David was, I suppose, in a way, putting forward an argument that's very much uh, opposite to the one that I speak about. Uh, I'm really interested in smartphones, but not only smartphones, exploring all areas of photography as well. I'm not somebody who is a natural uh, kind of supporter, I suppose, of the darkroom. I can see the darkroom's benefit in some areas, but I do not see it as being intrinsically what photography is and that photography cannot be something other than but great to hear from David there, and I really appreciate the points he put forward. The whole point of what we do here is we put forward people's opinions, we have discussions, we raise questions. We're always mutually respectful of each other, and I think that's really important in this increasingly fractious world in which we live. Anyway... Apart from uh, the situation there around darkrooms, if you don't know about David's work, then do please check it out. Uh, It is a phenomenal archive, and you're going to find photographs, images there of just about everybody I think you've ever listened to. Uh, That's the end of this week's episode. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, My voice is a little bit croaky at the beginning there. I'm recording this very early in the morning because uh, it's been getting very hot in the shed. So anyway, I hope that didn't (laughs) spoil your enjoyment. And of course, over the next week, just take care. (laughs) 